There is a lot to learn in Christianity. And I don't know if you guys are ever like me, but do you ever just get kind of overwhelmed with like, hang, this is like a big book with a ton of commands and a ton of instructions on how to live. And, and then it's a book that we have to like figure out, well, what's that mean in America in the 21st century in English, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's like we have so much to uh, wade through, it seems like. And um, there's commands and doctrines, and then you can read everything that everybody else has written about the Bible, and it's like there's just so much stuff to learn and to know. And so I love kind of one thing that Jesus does tonight, one of the main things, is he really kind of hones in on here's what it is important, here's what really matters. Um, And so it was kind of refreshing to me as I studied it because it kind of goes from some peripheral stuff that the religious leaders are bringing up and Jesus just kind of says, okay, here's what's what's really important, here's what you really kind of need to know, focus on. So um, in this story uh, that Matthew's presenting, there's these religious leaders, Pharisees, Sadducees. We'll talk a little bit about the difference. Um, it's not hugely important, but there's a couple things I'll bring up tonight. They're trying in our passage tonight, and we've seen a little bit in the past, to turn people against Jesus um, by bringing up issues that kind of forces people to take sides with, with or against Jesus. And... Um, it's like the religious leaders don't even really care which side he takes. They just want people to be against Jesus, so they'll have some reason to, um, to um, put him on trial, find something wrong with Jesus, or somebody that thinks that something's wrong with Jesus. Um, what do you guys think? Like, why would you say? What could you imply from? Maybe Matthew, or just what you know, like, why would these religious leaders be so against Jesus? Like, what are some of the reasons, or the main reason? He's a threat. A threat how? Their power, their influence over the community that they are asserting their authority over. Yeah, so they're like, you're saying they're in control and Jesus might take some of that control and authority or power. Yeah. Yeah, he just told them in that previous chapter we looked at that the kingdom of God would be taken away from them. So I'm sure they're pretty ticked. They didn't like that. No. Hmm. Yeah. Probably a lot of it has to do with pride and, and power and yeah, just not they haven't liked what Jesus says. Um, their leaders, they want to stay at the top. So basically, they're trying to, what we'll see tonight is three different times, they're trying to kind of trap Jesus or entangle Jesus, it says, into saying something wrong so that they can prosecute him. Because thus far, there's like nothing that he said in the book that they can say, ah, see what you said, that was wrong, and you've, uh, there's, there's no ground so far for being against Jesus. So they're going to try to find something first politically, like make some political enemies. <coughs> Uh, second, they'll try to make uh, a theological enemies of Jesus. And third, they'll try to make like ethical enemies of Jesus. So they kind of launch these different questioning like attacks to try to make Jesus say something that's going to tick somebody off. Um, and so the first one we'll read about, somebody can just read chapter 22, um, verses 15 through the end of that little section, 22. 15 to 22. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think it what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? 
they said Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Okay, cool. So here's what's happening. The Pharisees, or the, the disciples of the Pharisees, not Jesus' disciples, but the Pharisees' disciples, the Pharisees send their disciples to ask this question, along with the Herodians, uh, which we'll talk about in just a second. But the main kind of instigators are the Pharisees. They're plotting to entangle Jesus in his words, it says. And Jesus recognizes that. He says, why are you putting me to the test? He's aware of their malice. They kind of are real cunning about it. They, they make it sound like they're really for him. We, you know, you are true and you teach the way of God truthfully. Do they really think that? I don't think so. They're just kind of giving him this fluff, right? And then Jesus calls them hypocrites in verse 18. Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Why does he call them hypocrites? Verse 16 is what they're lauding Jesus for. You don't care about anyone's opinions, for you aren't swayed by appearances. Well, who does care about people's opinions and are swayed by appearances? Pharisees. The Pharisees. So he's saying you guys are being hypocrites in all of this. So they're setting this trap. Here's what the trap is. Um, basically, paying taxes to Caesar, who represents Rome, is like... That represents being in submission to Rome, which the Jews did not want to be in submission to kind of oppressive pagan Rome. So the Pharisees send some, some Pharisees or some disciples of the Pharisees who those Pharisee disciples, they didn't like taxes from Caesar and they felt like that was infringing on them. And uh, Do the armed chair. The queen has arrived. <laughs> <laughs> so they send these Pharisees who think that they shouldn't have to pay because of Jewish law. They shouldn't have to pay their pagan oppressors. So if Jesus answers the question, "Do you have? Should we pay taxes? Do we have to pay taxes?" and Jesus says, yes, you have to pay taxes, then he's going to make a bunch of enemies of all these Pharisees who are like, no, we shouldn't have to pay taxes to Rome. The Herodians are people who are, they're, they're still Jews, but they're, um, they're like a political party within the Jews who were loyal to Herod and kind of loyal to Rome. So they kind of, they agreed with some of the social and political policies of Rome, and they thought, hey, it's reasonable for us to pay taxes to Rome, unlike the Pharisees. So, if Jesus says, no, you don't have to pay taxes to Caesar, then these Herodians are going to be like telling on Jesus and telling the Roman officials, and Jesus can get busted for that too. So either way Jesus answers, this is like the trap that they're setting for him, either way he answers, he's going to make enemies, either of the Pharisees who don't want to pay taxes or of the Herodians who say we shouldn't be paying taxes. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So he ingeniously he grabs this coin or has them grab a coin of denarius and he says whose picture on this is on this and it's a picture you i don't i wish i had one to show you they, they still find them every once in a while and you can find them their picture of caesar tiberius caesar and it has some audacious kind of inscription on it about him kind of being divine and being a high priest and stuff that would really piss the jews off mm. um and so he says, whose, whose image is on the coin? And they're like, well, that's Caesar's image. And so he says, okay, then give to, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Now, interestingly, in verse 17, when they ask the question of him, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? That word pay there is different than how Jesus answers. You should render to Caesar the things that are Caesar. So not only in English, which they use pay and render or whatever your translations use, it's hopefully a different word, because in the Greek, it's, they're actually different words. So what they're saying, the question that they ask is, do we have to give Caesar money? And Jesus answers with the Greek word that means more to repay or to give back something that belongs to somebody else. 
So it's not just that you have to give money to Caesar, but he's saying you need to give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And this coin right here, this has his picture on it. And so technically it's his money. You're using Caesar's money, this Roman coinage in your life. So since you're using his stuff, then just pay him what you owe. And he also says give to God what um, belongs to him. So Jesus is kind of answering on two levels that doesn't really fall into their trap. He's answering that, yes, the government has some authority and it has this right to operate, uh, and that authority should be honored. But also God has authority, and that should be honored as well, and we should give to him what belongs to him. So basically, in a nutshell, give to people what their authority demands. And we can see all over Scripture, we talked about it in First Peter, but we not only honor God, but we honor those that he's appointed to leadership. And those two things aren't always in conflict. They want the Pharisees and Herodians want there to be conflict between those two, but Jesus is saying, if it belongs to Caesar, give it to Caesar. If it belongs to the Lord, give it to the Lord. And they're not necessarily against each other. You, we've talked before about how there's so many times, um, I so many, there's a handful of times in the New Testament that just talk about honoring <coughs> authorities, even government. So you don't have to love it, but it is what it is, and we're using these government systems, we're part of it, so just give them what they owe. So I want to ask you all a question. What are some implications for us in kind of what Jesus is teaching here. And you can say obvious stuff too. That's fine. Don't evade taxes. Don't evade taxes. Mm -hmm. That's probably a very direct application that still would apply to us, right? <clears throat> Does anybody not think so? Maybe we should evade taxes. No comment. That's why this country became great. We left instead of paying. I don't know. You know. <laughs> I feel yeah. like he might be saying, like, keep things in perspective hmm. a little bit. Because he's saying, like, render the things to Caesar that are Caesar, render the things to God that are God's. Like, like don't confuse things. Keep talking. Okay, like, well, because well, cause he's saying, like, like, I'm not, like, like, I'm not here to tell you, like, what you should do for Rome. I'm here to tell you what you should do for God. Yeah, maybe to, maybe to some extent, or it's, maybe, like, it's not all that important of a thing. Just, yeah. Just, like. Like, why are you asking me about this, like? Yeah, I think that's pro. I mean, as I kind of read it and have studied it, it seems like that is kind of some of, some of the underlying sentiment. Like they're they're just using these questions that I mean they they matter to the Jewish people, but it's not like some theological whatever question. Mm -hmm. It's just like what can we grab to try to trick Jesus into saying something that's going to mm -hmm. trip him up. But do you guys ever see? the billboards that say, don't pay that ticket. Yeah, oh, yeah, I did see that. <laughs> you don't have to, it doesn't matter if you if you broke the law or not, you shouldn't have to pay that ticket. Um, or like Mary Beth and I got a parking ticket recently, and I really think we missed the parking meter by three minutes maybe, yeah. I mean just barely, barely. And so we're like, well, wait, ah, we sh that's lame, we have to pay 60, what was it, 63 bucks or 70 bucks, something like that. Um, but the reality is we were like parked in uh, this <coughs> public area that ha rightfully has restriction. It's not like we owned this little plot of land um, and we, we owe whatever the laws of the land were in that. So, um, I wrote here, if you hate the government getting your money, then go buy a house in the country, quit your job so you won't have income tax, grow your own food, don't use public roads, homeschool your kids, dig a well for water, don't use electricity, use firewood from your own trees to keep warm. Otherwise, you're using the privileges of those systems that are set up, so just pay what 
what they demand, what requires. I mean, you don't you don't have to use those either. You're not forced into that. To that's within reason. Some things I feel like we are forced into. But pay to Caesar, what is Caesar's? To God, what's God's? Seems like. Um, the Pharisees are just failing in what they want to do. They want to pit Jesus against the government, the Roman government, but that's Jesus is saying those aren't necessarily in conflict. Now it's a secular government, but you understand that's Jesus hasn't come just to tear down the government. Um, so secondly, there's not just a political attack, but a theological attack. So somebody read verse 23 through 33, the next chunk. <laughs> The same day Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses, no, teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up children for his brother. Now there are seven <coughs> brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all the women died, and the resurrection or in the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage. <coughs> but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. All right, so Jesus is talking about like these marriage laws that are found in Genesis 38, Deuteronomy 25. There's something called the Leverite marriage law, which you may or may not know, but basically if a husband dies and he, he and his wife haven't had children yet, then it was the obligation of that husband's brother to marry her so they could carry on the, the family name and give inheritance away and whatever. And so that was like obligatory in the day. So think about like your husband dies, you have to marry your brother-in-law. Fortunately, worst idea ever. Yeah. Kind of weird. Not so what still. if they had a child and they are not allowed to marry? No. Right. Especially like birds or animals in general, your goal here is to reproduce, and yeah. the closest you can get to it, if you can't personally reproduce, is to raise your up your your nieces and nephews. So uh, fortunately, it doesn't seem to be the case anymore. Um, but, um, so this time the instigators in this kind of verbal questioning attack are different. They're not the Pharisees, but they're the Sadducees. Who The Sadducees just, you know, they're a little friendlier to Rome. They're still not like in love with Rome, but they're a little friendlier. And um, so they're not launching this attack to try to move Jesus and Rome as enemies, but they're launching this attack on more of a theological issue about the resurrection. Now, the Sadducees, as it says in verse 23, say that there is no resurrection. They don't believe that after somebody dies that they would come back to life. The reason for that is the Sadducees only believed, like, or, or they held in highest esteem the first five books of the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Torah. That was like what the Sadducees said, this is the, this is the scripture and the prophets and everything else just weren't as important or maybe not as reliable or whatever. Okay? The Pharisees, they would subscribe to whatever we see here in our Old Testament. But the Sadducees, just the first five books. And in the first five books, if you read them through, maybe read them through tonight. Just kidding. It'll take a long time. Um, <laughs> it, it doesn't talk very explicitly about raising from the dead. There's nothing like in maybe in their minds in that time, nor something that was written about that would lead people to believe that there's anything after death. You just go to Sheol and that's you're, you're done. Your existence ends. And so 
you can see, it, it's interesting that the Sadducees who say that there is no resurrection, because that's the only portion of scripture that they subscribe to, but they're asking this question, well, in the resurrection, what's going to happen? Obviously, they're trying to like just twist things up and say this resurrection idea is absolutely ridiculous because who are you going to be? Who is this lady going to be married to if she's had seven different husbands and she dies in in or in in the resurrection in in eternity? Which one of those seven is she going to be married to, or is she going to be married to all seven? And it, I think they're using this example of seven different brothers as something that would probably never ever happen one brother after another dies and dies and dies it's like this she bizarre she die at some point yeah right she she finally died as a uh, congenital disease yeah so yeah <laughs> maybe it's a <laughs> so yeah and I think most yeah. people think this something's wrong that <laughs> I, most people would say, ah, this probably, they're just like coming up with this scenario, right? Like it's not, um, not that it necessarily has, has actually happened, but, um, but there, it's like just this bizarre situation. Well, who is this woman going to be married to? And they're trying to say this resurrection idea doesn't make sense and use this argument to prove it. So, but the trap is, Again, they're trying to like get Jesus to say something that's going to make some people against him. So the Pharisees, the people in the previous little section, they believe in the resurrection like we do. We believe that people will be raised from the dead, not um, like when Jesus returns. Jesus was raised from the dead. There's a couple other people in the gospel. Like there is something after this, after we die on this earth. If we die, if Jesus doesn't return first, there is a resurrection from the dead. Pharisees believe that, Sadducees don't. So whatever Jesus says, either he agrees and he's like, you know what, you're right, there is no resurrection. Who would that woman be married to? Then the Pharisees are going to be ticked. Or if he says, nope, there is there is a resurrection, you're wrong, here's why, then the Sadducees are going to be ticked. Right? So it's, again, either way that he answers, he's going to be making enemies, or that's their hope. So Jesus... Um, I mean, he kind of has to go one way or the other on this. And so he answers um, in verse 30, he says, in the resurrection. So he's confirming, yes, there is resurrection from the dead. Um, he says, in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So Jesus gives a couple of things that the Sadducees would have no ability to argue with. One, he says, you guys aren't even understanding People won't be married in heaven. Like, what makes you think that there's going to be marriage in heaven? There's nothing in your like five books of the of Moses that are that says that people in the resurrection are going to be married. So, first of all, that idea is is something that was never was never said. Um, so you're not understanding the resurrected state. But then, secondly, he says this idea about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he. He points out a verse in Exodus. Jesus points this out, which Exodus is in the Torah, which the Sadducees are good with. So he's using their own um, reliable scriptures that they believe. And he, he shares with them, which they would have probably been familiar with this, that God said, and he said this to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, which God said that to Moses hundreds of years after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob died. Okay, that's when God told Moses that. So Jesus is saying, God says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He tells that to Moses. Not, I was the God, but I am the God. It's like present tense. Like, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob aren't just like, they haven't just disappeared off into the grave somewhere, but I am still their God. I'm not... He's not the God of the dead, but he's the God of the living. So he uses like the very scriptures that they truly believed in to point out that, that their God, Yahweh, God of the Old Testament, believes that there's something after <laughs> death for those guys, at least. And so he's answering like the Sadducees against what they want to hear, like, they would love for him to say, yeah, you're right, there's no resurrection. But he's answering them in a way that's, that they can't refute because he's pointed to their own scriptures, and he's saying don't even assume things about the resurrected state about marriage. Does that make sense? So he's kind of answering their, their arguments there. So, or their, 
how they're trying to trip them up. So I'll ask you guys this. What are some assumptions that you guys know that people make about the Bible that aren't true and because of it they write off Christianity or other parts of Christianity? They think, oh, the Bible says this, and it's like, no, it doesn't really say that. Can you guys think of any examples? What I hear a lot is, well, God hates sinners. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Doesn't it say that somewhere? I have a, a lot of people, a lot of people say that, like, if, isn't, like, the Bible just a book of rules, and if you don't follow them, you go to hell? <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's a very dramatic. <laughs> yeah, they're summarizing they're making these summarizing statements of the Bible that are <laughs> off and that the Bible doesn't actually say, yeah. Yeah, and there's probably others that we've heard before. But it's like what Jesus is doing here, or what Matthew's doing as he's writing this gospel, is he's showing, hey, you can't like you can't pit Jesus against things that God never really said. Like we need to you need to look into the scriptures and see what he actually said. And then there's not this chance to make enemies un, in an unreasonable way that the Sadducees were kind of looking for. So they're trying to, again, just like the Pharisees, they're very similarly, they're trying to trap Jesus in his words um, so that somebody can be against him. And it, it, it doesn't work. The, the Sadducees, it seems, they're astonished. The crowd, they heard it, they're astonished at his teaching. So maybe it was even more convincing than what we can read here. But um, it was it was convincing enough for the Sadducees. So the Pharisees do a final kind of, um, not political, not theological so much, but just an ethical attack where they try to trap him. So somebody read uh, verses 34 to 40. But when the Pharisees heard that that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend on the law and the prophets. All right. So we're back with the Pharisees, kind of that original group. Um, there was much debate among even the Pharisees, who are like the same denomination, so to speak, even though they didn't really have denominations like we have now. But, but they're the same religious, political kind of affiliation type people. And there was disagreement, though, within Judaism as to which of the commands of Scripture were more important and which were less important. Because there's, they would say, 613 commandments that God had given the Israelites, 613. And so they would kind of try to like have discussion among themselves of which were the heavy commands and which were the light commands, like which kind of took precedent and which, and it would give them something to kind of squabble about and kind of, you know, just figure out. And it's understandable, like you have 613 different things to remember, like you're trying to find some summarizing ways to talk about the commandments. And um, so maybe it was helpful conversation, but the trap is they're still trying to get Jesus to say something that would get him in trouble with one person or another. Something that would alienate the particular views of some of the Pharisees. So this isn't like trying to get Jesus to decide between Rome and Judaism like they did at the beginning. This isn't to try to get Jesus to decide between the Sadducees' view of the resurrection and the Pharisees like the last story. Or now this is like Pharisee versus Pharisee. Like they're trying to just get some division in there somehow. And once again, Jesus gives this wise answer that is it's impossible to dispute. So he quotes from Jesus knows y'all. Jesus knows the Bible really well, um, and you just can't like win in a battle of words with him. So he quotes Deuteronomy six five. And Leviticus 19.18. Um, 
Deuteronomy 6.5 was a hugely important part of scripture, is a hugely important part of scripture to Jews um, who would recite the Shema in Deuteronomy 6 like at least twice a day. They would say part of the command that Jesus mentions here and they'd have it written on their doors and they'd have it in their phylacteries that they'd wear on their forehead and it was like this was this was a well-known portion that Jesus was quoting when it says um, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then uh, Leviticus 19 is the other one that he quotes from, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, which was also this really esteemed thing that one um, rabbi says was was the central principle of the law, love your neighbor as yourself. Of all of the, what the Old Testament says, that's what it was coming down to. So um, just like pause for just a second. I, would, I just want to like point something out about those two commands. Like the, the Pharisees are saying, which are the, what's the great commandment? Or what's the greatest commandment in the law? Like what do we need to focus on? And Jesus points to two things. Love God and love people, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. So this is like many churches' mission statements because it's kind of a summary of um, a lot of the teaching of the Bible. Um, And Jesus doesn't make a big uh, point about this, except that he says the second is like it. The second command most is like the first command, but you can't have one without the other. You can't truly love God without loving people, and you can't truly love people without loving God. They kind of go hand in hand. So in the passage where, um, in in Leviticus, where they're told, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, that's surrounded by a bunch of times God saying to the Israelites, I am the Lord, do this. I am the Lord, do this. I am the Lord, love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And so there's this connection with how we view the Lord and how we love our neighbor. And then um, if you guys, you know the Ten Commandments, right? Maybe you've heard before. In the Ten Commandments, there's like the first four commandments are kind of directed towards how we love um, the Lord. Have no other gods before him. Uh, Don't use his name in vain. No graven images. Uh, Keep the Sabbath holy, right? And then the last six commandments are more about how we interact and love each other. So uh, honor your mother and your father. Don't murder, commit adultery, (coughs) lie, steal, covet. I think I'm getting most of them. Anyway, you could like boil down the Ten Commandments to, hey, here's how you're supposed to interact and love with God. Here's how you're supposed to with other people. And basically you can't have one without the other. If you don't have those two commands, the Bible is like just a bunch of rules, like sterile rules, right? If they're not driven by love for God and love for people, it's like it's just a bunch of rules. Um, And so, what Jesus does here is he's quoting these two commands. I think they were considered part of the 613 commands. They believed he's quoting these two commands. and But they're commands that aren't so specific. They're not so com- tangible, but they're about love, which makes it kind of impossible to debate that issue. Like, you can't say, well, no, that's not what the law and the prophets are about. It's, it's Jesus, again, answering in this way that not like the Pharisees wanted to divide them, but in a way that's, yeah, that's agreeable. I can't say that that's not a good summary of the law or those aren't the greatest commandments because um, it's just kind of within those commands. And it says, on these two commandments, verse 40, depend all the law and the prophets, or some translations say, hang um, all of the law and the prophets, or are suspended from. So everything kind of comes up between under these two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And um, so once again, Jesus isn't going to like fall into their trap, but he's going to show them, hey, Jesus isn't just about these ambiguous minutiae of his commands, um, but he gives them something that is agreeable to them in this case. So let me ask you guys this, uh, one more reflective question. How 
or have you all seen other Christians get kind of nitpicky over Jesus' commands at the expense of this overall command to love God and love people? So people get so caught up like trying to figure out exactly what we're supposed to do that they kind of forget about what Jesus says are these greater, the greatest commands. Have y'all ever seen anything like that? I've seen like a lot of um, like people that love to talk about theology in circles mm-hmm. and they love to talk about it so much that their lives don't really, they don't really do anything with it. It's like they just love to study and talk about it, but it's not like it actually inspires them to go live any differently or to actually implement all this knowledge that they're Mm -hmm. gaining you know they kind of just like to huddle up and have debates but it's like for what purpose yeah 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 that's a good example like are all of god's commands important (laughs) so like should do you think that it's right that we should discuss them and like kind of talk about how can we like diligently seek to keep God's commands Mm -hmm. yeah Mm -hmm. but probably shouldn't like get in a tizzy over it as we discussed and try to be divisive and mean and hateful and Mm -hmm. um yeah so there's I kind of think there's this progression that Matthew is doing again people are trying to get Jesus to say something that's going to make him enemies. So at first it's like these Pharisees are like, surely we can get Jesus to speak (coughs) against Rome. Uh, But he doesn't. Then the Sadducees are like, surely we can get Jesus to take sides with a certain sect within the same faith tradition, uh, Sadducees or Pharisees. Um, But he kind of just points them to scripture in a way that they can't refute. And then then it's not just within these sects of Judaism, but then the Pharisees are thinking, well, surely we can get Jesus to take sides with, well, maybe this this particular command is more important than this particular command in a way that will put some of the Pharisees at odds with Jesus, but he doesn't fall into that too. And so what's happening here is they can't get Jesus to make enemies and divide people, but the only thing that Jesus is dividing, as we're seeing Matthew explain here in this book, the distinction that he's making is those who have faith and those who do not have faith. Those who believe that he is who he says he is and those who do not. And so all all of these other things aren't of the most critical nature. Um, So Jesus isn't going to like just go off into those political or theological or ethical disputes that aren't nearly as important as the last question now that Jesus asks of them. So somebody read uh, the last portion of this chapter, verse 41 to the end. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, How is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Okay, so what the heck is this talking about? Verse 44 is kind of like obscure, and um, we'll figure that out. So Jesus is turning, it seems, to a much more critical question. So he's not talking about taxes, not what's the resurrection going to be like, not how what's the prioritization of commands, but who is the Messiah, who is the anointed one who will save his people? So it's like you, you want to know the most important question, much more important than all of these others. Here's the question you should be asking, who is Christ? So he asked them, whose son is the Christ? Remember, Christ is just the Greek word for Messiah. And without hesitation, they answer, oh, well, the Christ is the son of David. 
which it shouldn't be any surprise. We've talked about that several times in the book. He's, he's, in the, he's a descendant of King David. And if there's one thing that, that the Jews would agree about, it would be that, yeah, the Messiah is supposed to come from the line of David. This is like a really sure thing that they see in their scriptures. And several times in the book of Matthew, Jesus has been referred to as the son of David. But the thing is, and I don't know if I've made this real clear as we've been teaching through yet, but what they were expecting was not only a, a son or a descendant of David to be the Messiah, the anointed one, but that he would be a purely human Messiah. So he'd be like great, he'd be the anointed one, but just human. This is what they were expecting. So what Jesus does here to correct that misunderstanding is he quotes from Psalm 110. So this is important. Turn to Psalm 110 real quick. This is just the, um, um, it's called a messianic psalm, which means it's a psalm that was written to talk about the future coming Messiah. Um, so the, somebody read just the first verse of Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Okay, so you skip the first sentence. Like we all, always do, right? We skip over a Psalm of David. Yeah. But that's important. This tells, th this isn't like some editor's note, like, oh, this is, just so you know, this is written by, but this is part of the scripture, if you, if you didn't know that. The, the little title above it, Sit at My Right Hand, is not original. That's the ESV translators, or maybe your Bible says something different. That's just something that we've added to try to help people categorize different things. But a Psalm of David is part of it. So who's, who's writing this Psalm? David. David. Um, who is the first Lord there? The Lord says to my Lord. Yeah, Yahweh, guys, probably in all capital letters in your Bible, which which is just the the way of um, that our English translators show this word Yahweh. It means God. It's like God's name, all caps. And then who is my? The Lord says to my Lord, like who is who, who is Himself? We we've already said it. David. 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 And so the question is, who is this Lord? This, the second Lord. David's saying, the Lord God says to my Lord. So, and obviously it seems like this person, whoever my Lord is, is a very important person. They're going to sit at the right hand of Yahweh God. So, King David, back in the day, would have been the number one dude in the land, right? Like, he's the most sovereign, powerful authority in Israel. And obviously Israel would recognize Yahweh God as, as a higher power than King David because God is divine. But who is this other Lord? Who is the great King David, the, the, most, the highest authority in the land? Who is he referring to as Lord? And certainly if the Messiah was supposed to be a son, well, why would David address a son? You would never address your son or a descendant of yours as Lord. They would address you as Lord, maybe, but you would never address a son as Lord. So the point is, there is one, this Messiah, who isn't just a son of David, but there's somebody that's greater than David. My Lord, David says. And something makes him special but that kind of begs the question, because in human, like humanly speaking, especially to a Jew, nobody is higher than the great King David. Like he's the epitome of the wonderful follower of God. And so Jesus isn't denying here that what Matthew's been pointing out throughout the gospel, that yes, the Messiah is going to be a descendant of David. But what he's saying is that according to David's own words, which the Pharisees accept from the book of Psalms, that the Messiah is going to be somebody who's much more than just a descendant or a son of David. Does that make sense? So Jesus is kind of saying, who can be superior to King David? Well, it can't just be a mere man, but it would have to be somebody who is divine or a son of God. The Messiah you're looking for isn't a man, but he's God, he's a deity, and Jesus kind of just leaves it at that. So what's happening here at the end of this section, <coughs> Pharisees, Sadducees, they've tried to like, feed Jesus a bunch of stuff to get him at odds with people. And Jesus is saying, let's cut the crap, like all these political, theological, ethical, whatever questions. 
and let's focus on the important thing. And it's the important thing that Matthew's been focusing on for the whole gospel, even right from the very beginning. We talked about, hey, what's one of the main questions we need to ask that Matthew's answering in this gospel? Who is Jesus? And to answer that question is going to tell you where to place your faith, if it's going to be in Jesus or if it's going to be in something else. It's the crux of our faith. Who is this Jesus? Is he just a man? Is he just a son of David? Is he just, what is he? Or is he actually somebody who's divine? Is he a God-man? And Matthew's pointing out that Jesus, with this scripture, using their very scriptures, that David believed that there was somebody even above him, not just Yahweh God, but somebody above him. And so Jesus is the son, or the Messiah will be the son of David and the son of God, which we're going to see in a few weeks, or a few weeks for us, a few days for the story here that Jesus is about to raise from the dead, which gives good proof that he is God. So the second Lord, the one who's my own death, that's who Jesus is referring to? Not yeah, or, or just the Messiah, which is Jesus. But yeah, he's saying the one that you're expecting isn't just David's son, but David was pointing to somebody greater than him, which would be Jesus. Yeah. I love what it says in verse 46. No one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. And, like, they they didn't know what to say, they didn't know how to answer this. I think it's interesting to consider that there there was possibly a Pharisee in the temple when this discussion was taking place. It's in the temple, it doesn't say here, but it says in Mark. (coughs) Pharisee named Saul may have been, like, standing around in there, and though they couldn't answer this question right now, like, how is it that David says, the Lord said to my, how is it that David's referring to somebody who's greater than him? How is that, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Like, they don't know how to answer that, but maybe Saul, who then becomes Paul later on, uh, comes to the answer after Jesus is resurrected from the dead. And Paul says this, this is really cool, I think closely related. Paul talks about in Romans 1, the gospel of God, the good news of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. Now listen to what he says, what Paul says about his son, says about God's son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So Paul now, later on, after Jesus' resurrection, he he understands, oh, yes, he was a son of David. He was the rightful king, the expected Messiah, who was a descendant of David, as the genealogy at the beginning of the book points out. Um, But he's also the son of God, which was proven by his resurrection, where I think Jesus Jesus is just kind of pushing them that way. So, just to conclude, Matthew's writing a Jewish audience telling them this Jesus who I'm writing about is the Messiah he's the anointed descendant of your King David that you've been waiting for and he's the son of God himself so turn to him that's Matthew's urge and we'll keep seeing that through the end of the book So uh, one commentator says, all of his opponents, and speaking of this little section that we looked at tonight specifically, all of his opponents had been silenced, including the chief priests and elders, which was last week, the Pharisees and the Herodians together, we saw, the Sadducees and the Pharisees by themselves. And then D.A. Carson says, the teacher who never attended the right schools confounds the greatest theologians in the land. And they're all just kind of you know, left silent. So I don't know if you guys have seen this. I, I've seen this. I think we can see it in this story. But people who are against Jesus, they want to find something that's objectionable that Jesus says or does. But nothing that Jesus says or does is objectionable. Unless you want to object that he's God, in which case stick around for chapter 28 and read all of the other witnesses in Scripture of Jesus' resurrection. So I'll just leave you guys with this. This like it doesn't seem that Matthew's main point 
in this section four of the book is so make sure you pay your taxes. So that's a good like kind of sub application that's in there somewhere. Um, but just ask yourself this question or consider this like as you all consider Jesus, like if you think about Jesus and maybe conversations that you would have about him and the way that you think of him or even talk about him, like are you considering him as just a man or are you considering him as God? Okay, so is he a man or is he God or is he both? And then ask this other question, which I think is a little more relevant to me, because um, I, I think of Jesus as God usually, I think. But as you consider God, so just think of like God, the Godhead, the God the Father, think of God. And as you consider him or as you talk to others about him, is God in your mind, is that Jesus? Does he include the second person of the Trinity, Jesus. Because we can like we can find lots of people that will talk about God and be, you know, real excited about God and, and want to follow and believe God. But when it comes down to Jesus, through whom God's purposes are and redemptive plan, they they culminate in this person, Jesus. Um, <coughs> He's more than just a man, but he's also the Son of God. That's that's who Jesus is, and I think that's who Matthew wants to make sure that we understand he is. So, let me pray. Father, thanks for your word. God, you are so uh, smart, and uh, you um, your your word is perfect, and everything that you've uh, said in the Bible has has meaning and has its place and fits together and works together. It's this incredible story um, about a Messiah who was to come and save um, people from their sins, including us. And uh, it's just incredible, God, how you weave it all together. Uh, it's incredible that uh, we see just how perfect and wonderful and intelligent and loving that Jesus is as he displays himself in this gospel and sometimes find it hard to fathom that he would find himself on a cross uh, being killed uh, by the people that deserve to be killed themselves. Um, But God, we are just amazed that you have chosen uh, in Christ to give us access to God. We're amazed that in Jesus um, uh, we can be made right with you, God. And it's not, it's just simply that we would believe and have faith and trust you that you are who you say you are. And that we can trust you that you know what you've said and that your scripture is true. And uh, you just want our trust and dependence on you. So thanks, God, that we don't have to just do the right things, but we just have to believe on you. I pray that we would do that, that we'd grow in our faith and our understanding of you. Amen. Amen.